Alito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chatta Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chatta Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. There once was a general named George Crook, bless his heart, who in March of 1886 forced Geronimo into surrender, but Geronimo escaped that as well, right? Yeah, the, uh, he, he uh, really didn't force him into surrender. Uh, although I think that's, that's a matter of interpretation, but Geronimo agreed to, uh, to meet with, uh, with Crook to discuss terms of surrender at uh, uh, Canyon de Mudos which is about uh, 12 miles uh, <laughs> south of, uh, of uh, a slaughter ranch in the eastern corner, uh, southeastern corner of uh, Arizona. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they had a, uh, he and, he and the, uh, the rest of the, of the major leaders had a long talk with uh, uh, Crook, Crook told them uh, they should do what they wanted to do, but if they didn't surrender, then he would he would kill every one of them, and it, it took him fifty years of chasing them, and they believed him. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, so, uh, a day or two later, actually two days later, uh, they they agreed to uh, surrender. Uh, that the there was a, a whiskey peddler who had set up a tent uh, just uh, within walking distance of where, uh, where Crook and the Apaches were meeting. And after the Apaches uh, decided that uh, they were going to surrender, they decided they needed a train. And mm -hmm. so uh, Geronimo uh, went over to, uh, to get one and uh, uh, a whiskey peddler that he had known for a long time and had done business with uh, trading uh, everything from livestock to uh, firearms, uh, uh, wound up telling him that um, the plan was for uh, 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 them to get Geronimo across the border and then Crook was going to turn him over to the civilian authorities, which was not true but that's what, uh, that's what the president Grover Cleveland wanted to do. And so uh, uh, after a, a couple of nights of uh, uh, drinking in a, in a heavily way, Geronimo and uh, uh, about uh, 40 of his people, there were, I think, 18 men and 22 women and children uh, uh, escaped in the middle of the night when they were about three miles from the border and they headed for uh, uh, Fronteras. And uh, the, the, the uh, soldiers uh, with, the, with the scouts 
uh, tried to catch them, but by the time they got to Frontiers, they did an old Apache trick, which was uh, everybody take off in a different direction and they couldn't follow all of them. And, and uh, they were about out of supplies anyway. And so they turned around. And so uh, uh, Geronimo escaped uh, that as well. Wow. Another escape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why don't you share about Geronimo and his run-ins with General Miles? Bless his heart, too. Well, if you uh, include the surrender in 1886, um, Miles was afraid to, to go accept the surrender of Geronimo and Naichi in, uh, in Skeleton Canyon. They were supposed to, uh, the, the, the Apaches came up uh, uh, with Lawton escorting them to prevent attacks from Mexicans and uh, U.S. cavalry. Uh, to Skeleton Canyon there in the, in the uh, uh, southeastern corner of Arizona. And they actually got there uh, about the 1st of September. And uh, uh, Miles was afraid to go accept the surrender of Geronimo and Naichi mm -hmm. because uh, uh, Geronimo had told... Uh, Crook that he was going to surrender and then didn't, and Crook had to resign his, uh, uh, his job there. And so uh, uh, Lawton had to beg and conjole Miles to come down and accept the surrender. And Miles in his telegrams hinted in his answers uh, to, uh, to Lawton's telegrams that if, if uh, Geronimo and his people were killed escaping, he wouldn't mind. And in mm -hmm. fact, he also, uh, he also emphasized that about three times before he finally sucked it up and mm -hmm. came down. And uh, uh, three days later, 1886, September the 4th, uh, was when uh, 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 the surrender was for formally took place. There's also the debate at, at uh, the 1898 Omaha's World's Fair Exposition where uh, 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 Geronimo went to his first World's Fair Exposition so people could see him. And uh, uh, lo and behold, uh, Miles, who was now the uh, uh, Secretary of the Army, came and uh, they actually had a debate uh, where uh, Geronimo uh, uh, flat out said Miles had lied to him about, about the surrender and Miles laughed at him and said, uh, yeah, that's right. I lied to you once. You lied to everybody at long, uh, uh, your entire life. And uh, uh, I learned from you. But what, uh, what it appeared to the newspaper reporters who were there was that was in fact that uh, uh, Geronimo had, had gotten a good lick in and, and showed what, uh, uh, what an ass uh, uh, Miles was. Hmm. There you go. And Miles was over there pulling his hair out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, you talked about the Trojan horse earlier. Let's talk about that in a little more depth and the reservation the U.S. government created for the Chiricahua Apache in 1872. Okay. Um, the, the Trojan horse in the, in the story in Homer was a lie. Uh, the, the Greeks set it up so that, that, uh, the Trojans uh, believed that uh, they were leaving and uh, the Trojan horse was a, uh, a, a gift to the gods that the, uh, that the Trojans could have. And so they pulled it inside their gates. Well, um, uh, Miles used lies uh, when, uh, when he got uh, Geronimo to surrender 
and uh, and so uh, uh, he had he had promised first that if they surrendered, then the, uh, the men would get to see their their families in five days. Well, that didn't happen. It was more like seven months. Oh my! And they were deliberately separated uh, uh, because of. Uh, and secondly, that uh, uh, they would have a, a, a reservation where they could farm and ranch and uh, 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 on and on it went. The, the, the reservation that the government created for uh, uh, Cochise was called the was called the Chiricahua Reservation, although it was only for the Choconans in, uh, in 1872. And they basically gave Cochise everything that he wanted. On the other hand, when, uh, uh, when they started looking at a, a reservation for the uh, 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 Chiricahuas after 1886, it took them uh, 20, 27 years before they really? uh, finally uh, uh, came up with a, uh, a solution. Uh, some of the, some of the Chiricahuas stayed there at Fort Sill and some, uh, the majority, about two thirds, went to the uh, uh, Mescalero Reservation in New Mexico. Hmm. Wow. And you know, you've talked earlier about the news and the papers and what they would say. He was really big news throughout the U.S. too, with all these goings on, wasn't he? Yeah, and in fact, he knew it. He, <laughs> I, I, I have yet to figure out exactly how that worked. But uh, one of the things that he told uh, 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 Miles when he surrendered was, "I want my record wiped clean, and I don't want the newspapers to be writing about hanging." hanging me or my men really yeah so interesting so somebody was i don't know if i i don't know if he could could he read english he couldn't read wow so someone was telling he, him yeah uh he uh he had uh in uh, late late well not late about halfway through uh his uh captivity he had become a, 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 a member of the army, believe it or not. And he, he had a watch and uh, he, he couldn't read the, uh, the numbers, but he knew that, that uh, uh, a circle around the watch corresponded to what the Apaches called uh, a hand of time which if you, if you hold your, the flat of your hand up against the horizon and start counting and go, uh, go from top to bottom, uh, you'll uh, uh, find that it's right at 12 hours or, or 12 hands. And so for an Apache, an hour's time was about a, a, a hand width of the, the sun moving against the horizon. Oh, wow. Interesting little tidbit there. Yeah. Wow. So with all these battles that were going on, was he wounded along the way? Uh, yeah. Uh, there was a, a, a famous uh, portrait artist, a man named Elbridge I. Burbank, who painted uh, Geronimo several times at... Uh, Fort Sill for the Chicago Field Museum. And he became good friends with Geronimo. And one day Geronimo showed him his body. Hmm. And uh, Burbank said that he counted more than 50 scars on uh, Geronimo's body. Some were deep enough to even hold a pebble. Whoa. Well, you know how earlier you said that it was not, it was kind of frowned upon if you got wounded in battle, but I think he deserved it, don't you? I mean, he worked really hard. <laughs> Yeah, he did. <laughs> well, one more question about, you know, Geronimo, all these battles. I would think that the fact that he knew the land there so well was really helpful in his running from the soldiers along the way, right? Oh, yeah. It, uh, 
it, it made a big difference. I mean, uh, uh, the fact that, that the Apaches knew where, where every waterhole was, uh, they knew that uh, they could hide in uh, arroyos, they knew how to cross uh, uh, the border where they wouldn't be seen. Uh, made made all the difference. In fact, that they were such uh, phenomenal athletes, uh, you could easily estimate that that one Apache was the equivalent to uh, 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 maybe ten uh, uh, army privates, mm -hmm. or uh, uh, maybe more than that. It just it just depended on the uh, on the situation. Yeah. Well, without further ado, would you read to us some words from the book, again, titled The Iliad of Geronimo? Sure. Uh, I'll, read, uh, I'll, I'll read a little about uh, uh, his first escape from San Carlos in 1878. And the, uh, the, the setup for uh, the scene I'm, I'm going to uh, read is... Uh, uh, they had decided to have a big uh, tulipi drunk. Mm, okay. uh, the, the army, the army had uh, had given the women their ration of corn uh, to plant, and they decided they had a lot more than they needed, and so uh, they made uh, uh, tulipi, which is like a strong uh, beer made from corn. Uh, some, sometimes it's weak, sometimes it's strong, but, uh, uh, the, when the, when the beer was, was ready, they, uh, they had a big get together and, uh, Geronimo, uh, drank it down and, and he was tearing his hair, trying to figure out, uh, since they couldn't, uh, on a reservation, they couldn't take the young men out with the warriors to, uh, uh, do their four time. Uh, raid uh, drill, and so how in the world would they ever know that a, that a kid was a man? And uh, uh, he uh, kind of made some some bad mistakes that night, and uh, uh, eventually passed out. And this is where uh, the the reading picks up. <clears throat> the sound of women wailing filled my dream. I wondered for whom they cried, but their cries didn't vanish when I cracked an eye open to the bright sunlight and felt the throbbing in my head like someone keeping time on a stiff hide with a looped willow stick. Someone had covered me with a blanket, which I pushed off as I staggered up, drank a long time from the water jug left for me and then splashed cold water on my face. It was three or four hands, hours, after the sun had come, bright and throwing shafts of light through the tops of the pines. I saw the people of the camp gathered at the farthermost wickiup set back in the trees. I stared at the place. Through the thick fog in my brain, the realization came slowly that they stood around Nadoste's lodge. I ran, staggering and stumbling, thinking that my sister had ridden the ghost pony to the happy place. The crowd parted to let me into the inner circle. Now Doste was on her knees, keening beside a blanket on which the body of my nephew lay. An angry raw rope burn was around his neck. He had made himself dance on the air and ridden the ghost pony to the happy place. I shook my head in disbelief. Why would a young man near the prime of his life kill himself? I turned to the group around us. Why did he do this? Why? Chapo spoke up and said, after he spoke with you, Father, he walked past us into the darkness saying over and over, I will be a man. I will be a man. Now Doste stopped her crying and said, what did you say to him, brother? I was thinking of what we should do now that boys cannot go on rage as novitiates in order that they be recognized as warriors and men. 
I asked him how he thought he might prove himself a man if he couldn't be a novier. He said he would be a man. And I said, injure, good. Now Doste buried her face in her hands and wailed. I said, come sister, I will help you with the burial ceremonies for Yeshaye, your son, and Mashika, my nephew. He was a good boy. Usen will hurry his journey to the happy place. This is the white eyes fault, I thought. They won't let our sons become men. But as I thought of the last time I spoke with my nephew, I realized it was my fault. My nephew had thought that I had said I, I could never be a man and had killed himself to prove he was a man. It was time to leave this place where no good comes to those who stay under the watch of the blue coats and white eyes, and they would blame me for the tulip eye drink. So listeners, it's the Iliad of Geronimo by W. Michael Farmer. Go get you a copy today. It's There's so much more in that book um, that we can all uncover about Geronimo. I love this. Thank you, Michael, for that. And we'll actually come back to what happened in Geronimo's world in just a bit. I want to talk about also your newest book coming out in November of 2022, which I'm excited listeners because I got a little sneak peek at it. Um, the name of the book is Trini Come, Geronimo's Captivity of Trinidad Verdon. Listeners, I twisted Michael's arm to give us all a, a little more of a sneak peek into the content and it is extremely interesting. Tell us about Trini and about her encounter with Geronimo. Uh Trini was a uh, uh, 12-year-old girl when, uh, when all of this happened. She was an orphan, and she uh, was, was living on a ranch with, uh, with an aunt whose name was uh, Petra Peck. Uh, she was married, Petra was married to a, a man named Artisan who uh, had mined, got some money together, and uh, they had bought a little ranch and were, were trying to develop it into something. Uh, they already had a, a, a two-year-old son uh, named Andy. And uh, uh, Petra was unexpectedly pregnant again. And so uh, she had asked uh, Trinidad to, uh, to come help her with the, with the chores uh, as, uh, as her pregnancy progressed. And she was there. And one morning, uh, uh, while she was trying to, uh, to get the baby to go to sleep, they heard uh, the, the horses uh, uh, and other livestock in the corral uh, 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 stomping around nervously. And, she asked uh, Trinidad to go uh, to go look, and uh, Trinidad peeked through a crack and saw an Apache squatting in the dust, uh, eyeballing the uh, eyeballing the stock. She ran back, told her aunt. Her aunt uh, took uh, a revolver that her husband had left. He had he had gone off with a, a neighbor he had hired to help him uh, mark some. Uh, uh, wild bulls that they had caught. Uh, and long story short, uh, the Apache uh, killed her with, a, with a one shot and uh, snatched up the baby and, and smashed its head against the side of the building and killed it. Uh, her aunt had told Trinidad to hide and not let him see her. And she got under the bed uh, shortly after uh, after uh, her aunt was murdered, the, uh, the about fifteen other Apaches showed up, and they tore the place apart. And in doing so, they discovered Trinidad and and uh, pulled her out from under the bed, uh, and was about to cut her throat when uh, Geronimo uh, walked in and told him to wait. Uh, and I think. Uh, uh, while this is pretty much a true story, I think the reason that he uh, that he wanted to save her was uh, to keep her as a uh, as an exchange 
captive for uh, uh, their people that the Mexicans had, uh, had put into slavery. Uh, in, in any case, uh, they, they took Trinidad with them, uh, went out and uh, they found her, her uncle and the uh, uh, hired man uh, doing their work. Uh, they tried to get away. Uh, they killed the hired man, killed the horse that uh, her uncle Artisan was on. And uh, uh, he thought he was, he was going to die. Uh, Trinidad was riding behind the son of uh, Geronimo. And uh, uh, they, they carried uh, uh, Artisan up to Geronimo. Introductions were made. Geronimo thought it was kind of funny that uh, the guy was, was wearing these uh, long sleeve, uh, 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 long underwear. And they called him Mangus Coloradus, red sleeves. <laughs> and uh, 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 told him that uh, he had, he, Geronimo, had lost all of his family too. And so uh, uh, he let him go, but he told him uh, not to go back to his ranch. Uh, and the and the warriors uh, threw him on the ground, took off all his all his clothes except his long underwear, took his boots, and uh, the the last time Trinidad saw him for a while, he was walking across uh, a hot desert in his bare feet and red underwear. And uh, eventually, he made it back to a little town uh, uh, that they were close to and about 10 miles north of Nogales named Calabasas. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, Trinidad uh, wound up uh, living with the uh, uh, Apaches for about two months. And just about everything that we know about what Geronimo did during those two months comes from her, uh, comes from her stories. Uh, and she uh, wound up uh, uh, being well liked by the by the Apaches because uh, first she did what they told her to do, and uh, she was pretty energetic in uh, in helping uh, uh, Geronimo's wife with the with the chores and get, gathering firewood and stuff like that. Uh, she became friends with a, a 10 year old boy who taught her how to use a sling. Uh, uh, and she taught him uh, how to speak Spanish. And uh, eventually managed to get away when uh, uh, Mexican paramilitary <clears throat> uh, uh, ran upon uh, her with Geronimo and a few uh, a few other of the Apaches, not the whole group. Uh, there was a big shootout. Geronimo uh, yelled for her to uh, uh, get up on the back of his horse. And he was riding away when the horse stumbled and threw both of them. And uh, she suddenly realized that uh, this was probably her only chance to, uh, to get away from the Apaches. And so, uh, she ran, she ran for the, uh, the, the Mexicans who were shooting, uh, taking a risk that they thought or uh, they would think that she was an Apache. Uh, and uh, uh, fortunately they didn't shoot her and uh, uh, she made it, she made it uh, back to uh, Nogales and uh, uh, never saw the, uh, never saw the Apaches again. Wow. You know, I was telling you earlier that there's that part that you described where Trini could see um, her aunt being killed and it's just so heart-wrenching and terrifying. And at the same time, there's two sides to, to every story. There's a reason that the Apaches were um, these fierce warriors. Um, and it's just kind of an interesting dynamic between Trini and the idea of you know, Geronimo and being on that, that ride with him for two months or being around them for two months. Yeah. Very, this story is so interesting y'all. And I would probably bet my next paycheck, our listeners have not heard about this story. So okay. let's hear an excerpt from this book again, called Trini come Geronimo's captivity 
of Trinity Verdin? Well, there's a the the setup is uh, uh, in this excerpt is uh, she's with her uh, Apache friend, a boy named Garditha, who'd been teaching her how to use a sling while she taught him to speak Spanish. Uh, they finished their camp sh uh, chores after the band had moved to the Santa Cruz River. <coughs> and they'd been given permission to go practice with their slings. And uh, uh, this is where the story picks up. We soon tired of skipping rocks and following the curve in the river south until we came to a high bank with a wide bench to the river on its east side. The bank in deep shadows was an ideal place for us to set up cross stick targets for our slings. The sun moved about a hand while we practiced. I was happy my stones were hitting closer to my cross sticks target than in earlier practices. And I was throwing harder. Garditha was throwing with such speed and accuracy that he destroyed his target and had to replace his target sticks twice. I was waiting for him to replace his target a third time when I heard a horse snort upstream and looking over my shoulder saw three vaqueros with amused looks on their faces mounted on horses standing in the middle of the river a little upstream from us. The oldest, his face covered by a gray scraggly beard and a sombrero hanging against his back, had a cigarette dangling from the crooked smile on his lips. The other two, a couple of steps behind him, seemed to be waiting for him to take the lead. The one to his left looked the youngest and I didn't, and didn't have any hair growing on his face. The one to his right looked about artisan's age and moved as if there was little doubt what he would do next. They were all wore holsters filled with big revolvers and full cartridge belts. I had no idea how long they had been there and didn't think Garditha working on his target against the bank had seen them either or could see them now. I felt a surge of hope, perhaps today freedom. But as I looked at the old one's narrowed eyes, his long, greasy, salt and peppered hair hanging close to his brow and sneer on his lips, I heard warning bells ringing in the back of my mind. I didn't like the looks of the man whom the others seemed to follow and who might save me. He took a draw on his cigarette, blew the smoke up toward the trees and said in Spanish, so muchacho, how is it you play with an Apache? Where is his padre? Maybe he's stolen you from your padre, eh? Apache hair, even from a muchacho, sells for good money in Nogales. He flipped his cigarette in the river and held a finger to his lips for silence before he motioned toward the young man on his left and pointed toward me. Young one grinned and rode across the river toward me. I had frozen, uncertain what to do until the old one spoke of Apache hair selling in Nogales. He was going to kill and scalp my friend Garditha, take his hair for money. I felt sick just thinking about it. The Apaches were no more brutal in killing Petra and Andy than the Caros would be in killing and scalping an Apache child, not to mention what they might do to me because my family wasn't rich enough to pay a ransom for me. As young one approached the riverbank, I shook my head and pointed for them to go away. Old one, grinning like a hungry wolf, again held his finger to his lips and drew a skinny knife from a sheath on his gun belt. He nodded to the man on his right who drew his knife too. What they planned to do, I could not let happen. I had left a nice smooth pebble in the pouch of my sling while I waited for Garditha to fix his target. And I started to whirl it as I took a step back. Young one's horse was nearly to the riverbank when I heard a smacking sound like a fist hitting a palm. Garditha's throw straight and true hit the young one in the right temple above his eye. Young one's arms flew up as his head snapped back. A look of surprise frozen on his face. 
his eyes wide and losing life. His rein slid from his fingers and he rolled slowly off his horse to land face down in the river. Garditha screamed his war cry just as I threw as hard as I could to hit the old one. My stone struck his arm near where he was holding a skinning knife. He dropped the knife and bellowed, ow, maldita puta, damned whore. I was very lucky to hit him at all. I had been aiming for his head. He dropped his reins and reflexively tried to reach his revolver while holding his wrist, but he couldn't make his hand close on it and lift it. There was a big knot on his arm near his wrist where my stone had hit. I knew then that the stone must have broken a bone. While the old one tried to pull his revolver, I loaded another stone and started to whirl it when a stone from Garditha whizzed past the third vaquero's face and took off most of his ear, just as he threw his knife, which thudded into a tree a hand width from Garditha's head. The vaquero's hand flew to cover his bleeding ear. A grinning snarl filled his face, which was wrinkled in pain. He laughed and reached for his pistol and had it halfway out of his holster, but then glanced to where the riverbed's curve blocked his view of our camp and slammed it back in its holster. Oldman's horse spooked and pranced around, raising sprays of water with each hoof as it tried to decide which way to run. The blood ear of a carol managed to gather its reins and jerked it to attention, saying quietly, whoa, whoa, muchacho. Jose, stick your arm in your shirt for a sling. We ride. He glanced at the young vaquero still face down in the water, then me and snarled, soon puta hova vincita, whore young and small, we come back and kill you all. A sling's throw whizzed past his horse's rump, leaving a streak of bright red, making it squeal and rear, nearly throwing him off. He yelled at the old man, grab your saddle and hold on. He put spurs to his horse and leading the old man's horse, charged straight for me. I waited until they were nearly upon me so close I could see the blood from his ear trickling down the collar of his shirt to jump out of the way as they thundered past. They spurred their horses unmercifully, their hooves leaving a dust cloud behind them as they raced up the river towards San Lazaro. Garditha ran past me, pointing toward the young vaquero's horse, signaling for me to grab its reins. I waded into the river, holding my hand out and clicking to him. And he stood long enough for me to snatch the reins. He didn't try to run, but I held on to them as if they were a lifeline. When Garditha stopped splashing in his run to the Bocaro, he turned. I turned to see him jump and land on the man's shoulders with his knees, his knife out, and it seemed in one motion he grabbed his black, greasy hair, pulled his face out of the water and made a clean, fast slice across his throat before dropping his head to make the water around the Carol's body slowly turn red. I felt sick and wanted to puke, but I swallowed it back. Garditha, who told me later he had never killed a man, was pale and looked sick too. We stared at each other for a moment before I led the horse out of the water and tied it in the brush out of sight from the river. Garditha and I tugged Young's body out of the red water and onto the bank. We each took an arm and, to, and struggled to drag it into the brush where it, could be, where it would be hard to see. I, called, I told Garditha to stay nearby while I ran to get Geronimo. He nodded, waved for me to go on and ran to a towering cottonwood with big roots where he could slump between them and become practically invisible to anyone near the river's edge. I ran down the river to Shiga's fire, where she still worked on her evening meal. I ran up to her out of breath. Geronimo, you run hard, you Sita. She cocked her head to one side. Why Geronimo? I puffed out of breath because Garditha and I have killed a vaquero and driven off two others towards San Lazaro. They yelled they were coming back to kill us. She guy's jaw dropped and then she was up and running over to the willow tree where Geronimo napped. When she pulled back the limbs where he snored, 
He was already up on his knees with his rifle cocked and ready to bring it to his shoulder. His eyes glittering with excitement, he said, what's happened, woman? <laughs> we talked about poor General Miles earlier. Is that who he surrendered to? It is, yeah. Wow. You once told me that your favorite book you've written is The Odyssey of Geronimo, 23 Years a Prisoner of War. Why is that your favorite? Because uh, I think it shows the, the strength, the courage, and the heart of a man under hard times, and how given his advanced age, he managed to survive. Well and said. Very well, yeah. Well said. Once I'm finished with the three books you sent me, by the way, uh, listeners, um, Michael was kind enough to send me three books while I was recovering from a surgery. And I've been so grateful to have those books. So once I've finished all three, I'm interested to see which one will be my favorite. And if, you know, if I agree with you, so, <laughs> but I love that you took Geronimo's story and turned it into a first person's perspective. It, it brings him to life a bit. Um, what's the time frame that this book covers? Uh, it, it runs from, uh, 1886 to uh, February 1909. Okay. So why don't you read to us a bit out of this book again? It really, like I said, it makes him come to life. So the Odyssey of Geronimo, 23 years a prisoner of war. Okay. Uh, Fort Pickens in Pensacola Bay, uh, where only the men with Geronimo had stayed for seven months and heard nothing from their families. Mm. Now the army has been under such uh, uh, heat for the way they treated uh, the, the uh, Apaches at Fort Marion and St. Augustine uh, that they uh, are, are carrying them to uh, Mount Vernon Barracks, 30 miles north of Mobile. And the families of the Geronimo men are dropped off on the way and the men have spent the day watching for them from the top of Fort Pickens. And uh, this, is, this is where the, the story picks up. The sun was falling into the big water to the west and painting the sky in oranges and purples. But we looked to the east where there was a little plume of smoke on the water. The plume grew and came toward us. We climbed down from the top of the fort and started a fire so our women and children might see us and have its warmth. When the soldiers brought them down the trail through the sweet smell of the flowers in the trees and vines and the welcome songs of insects and peepers. We lighted the lanterns Langdon gave us and carried them to light the rooms we would have. When we waited by the fire for our families to come to us, there was only a fingernail moon and it was dark and it was a very dark evening. We waited, staring into the darkness, listening for them to come. It seemed like we waited a long time and then as if by some magical silent ceremony, their faces showed at the edge of the firelight. Children ran to their fathers who swooped them up and held them close. Our women came forward, proud and full of grace. Shigai came hurrying out of the darkness, followed by Zaye holding Fenton's hand. And then Iteta came into the light with our daughter in her arms. I took Fenton in my arms and swung him out in a wide circle while he giggled, his eyes shining. My women came to stand around me and I looked each of them in the eye before I spoke. I said, my women and children have come. Turn yourselves and let my happy eyes see you. They turned. She got looked thinner than I expected. Maybe she needed medicine. I would speak to her of this when we were alone. Perhaps I could make her some medicine and do a sing to help her. She got laughed and said, husband, your women, and children have returned. Our hearts are warmed to see you. Zaye, her eyes sparkling in the firelight said, husband, it has been two harvests since the white eyes took me and your son Fenton. Usen has returned us to you. 
He has answered our prayers. Uh, Tata came forward with a bright smile, laid our baby in my arms and said, husband, I bring you our first child, a daughter. I asked that we name her Lena. Lena was a fine baby. She was asleep when I Tata gave her to me and stirred enough to chew her fist as I rocked her in my arms. I said, I don't know where you found this name, but I'm happy with it. She is Lena, daughter of the Chiricahua Apache Goyakala, the Diane, the Nikes call Geronimo. Shiga saw me glancing over the other children for Shista Shea's child. I didn't see her. And when I glanced at Shiga, she looked at the ground and shook her head. I saw my warriors talking calmly with their wives and children, not publicly showing their great affection for them with bad manners as the white eyes did. And I was proud of them all. I reached down, took Fenton by the hand and said, come my son, I show you where you live here on the big water. Beautiful. I love this. Okay. Maybe I'll like this book better than Trini. I don't know. That was beautiful. <laughs> Goosebumps moments. Wow. And then Geronimo, you know, he, he, there was a side of him that you just pointed out, you know, where he was a father. And then on the other side, he was a warrior and he obviously felt great passion for his family, his first family that he had to go um, vindicate. And then he had more children later. And obviously this, you know, you have to see that side of Geronimo too, that surely he was a father that loved his children. And yeah. then he was a prisoner of the U.S. for how many more years? Uh, for the rest of his life or uh, for about 23 years. Wow. Well, why did he surrender? Uh, he actually wanted to die like uh, Victorio did. Victorio uh, was nearly out of ammunition uh, when he was fighting the, uh, uh, the Mexicans. And when he had fired his last bullet, he pulled out his knife and stabbed himself in the heart. That's, that's how Geronimo wanted to, to go. But he surrendered because three of his best warriors, uh, Yanoza, Fun, and Perico, said they would surrender because they wanted to see their families. And Geronimo said that without them, there was just no chance of the band's survival. Wow. Yeah, he, it, it was that weird place to be as any kind of warrior, leader, chief, whatever it was at the time to have to make a decision about what's best for themselves, their families, their tribe, and the survival of all of them later. So another book you wrote, Geronimo, Prisoner of Lies, is set around the time frame of Geronimo after his surrender in 1886. And this goes back a bit to General Miles and that whole Trojan horse thing. So what did happen in the late 19th and early 20th centuries after Geronimo's surrender? Uh, the, the terms of, uh, uh, of the Geronimo Naichi band, and I include Naichi there because he was the, he was the chief, uh, the, the terms of their surrender were not met. Uh, first, uh, they were supposed to be re, uh, reunited with their family in five days. It took over a year. Uh, two, they implied they would not be POWs more than two years. Uh, and they were POWs for 27 years. Oh, wow. Three, they were promised a big reservation with no other tribes on it. And they very nearly had it at Fort Sill, but it never happened. Hmm. Nevertheless, at Fort Sill, they had their own horses. They learned farming and carpentry skills, uh, had the best cattle herd in the state. And each family had 10 acres to raise uh, garden vegetables, uh, grain, and cotton crops. <clears throat> the, the Chiricahuas preserved some modicum of their culture. You see this when, uh, when their children who were uh, uh, taken to Carlisle School in Pennsylvania for 
years. Some of them were gone as long as eight years, returned to their families when they were free to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and when they got out of Carlisle, they were they were not considered prisoners of war anymore, but they went back and they stayed with their families anyway. Oh, okay. Geronimo uh, appeared in three World Fair expositions. He rode in Teddy Roosevelt's inaugural parade, married two women, had two children, was a village chief and a justice of the peace, and was wealthy when he died. Hmm. Many of the Chiricahuas uh, became Christians, including Geronimo, for about three years. And most of the Chiricahua men joined the U.S. Army as full-fledged soldiers. And when their terms were up, they were free to go, but their families were not. Hmm. Interesting. So then after the surrender, were the Apache able to maintain their tribal culture? Uh, yeah, they, they did. Uh, and, you know, as I, as I say, uh, it was, there was enough training there, even when, uh, when the children were quite, were quite small, that uh, uh, they, uh, they still came back and uh, uh, the, the, the cows did things like, uh, they would tell them stories over and over until the point where the children could uh, could repeat the story oh. from, from memory. Uh, and they had uh, uh, feasts and and uh, special days, and uh, you know it was it was uh, it was just something that and they and that the Chiricahua men knew exactly what they were doing. They knew if they didn't do something like that, then their culture would disappear. Hmm. And that's what the whites wanted. Interesting. Well, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'm, I'm amazed that they were able to hang on to their culture as long as they did. And now, of course, today, we're all trying to relearn that culture. So let's hear from your book, Geronimo, Prisoner of Lies. Okay. Um, this, is, this is what life was like for the Chiricahuas at Fort Marion in St. Augustine. The first group sent to Fort Marion was shipped from Bowie Station about 11 miles north of Fort Bowie. There were 77 prisoners, 15 men, 33 women, and 29 children. Among these were two wives and three children of Geronimo, and two wives, two children, and the mother of Naichi. They reached Fort Marion on April 13th, one day after General Miles relieved General Crook due to his resignation, when Geronimo failed to come in as he had agreed. Later that year, the War Department asked Fort Marion's commander, Lieutenant Colonel Loomis L. Langdon, later to be commander of Fort Pickens, if he could take four or 500 more prisoners. Langdon answered he could take at most another 75, but he recommended not sending any more at all. He explained in a revealing letter the kinds of conditions under which his prisoners live. Walls with casemates, once inhabited by the, gar by the garrison, surrounded the small 100-foot square uh, parade ground. However, the terraplane above the casemates had become so dilapidated and leaked so badly that the casemates were uninhabitable. Langdon wrote that he had put up 18 tents on the terraplane, which was 15 yards wide with four foot high walls around the edges to shelter the first group of prisoners and could possibly put up 20 more tents there to house 80 more. But he said sanitary conditions would be bad. There were only two bathtubs, one for men and one for women in the entire fort. The fort was so close to and surrounded by St. Augustine that it was impractical to put tents outside the walls or on some nearby islands which overflowed with water in the winter. Nevertheless, General Philip Sheridan passed Langdon's letter to the rest of the army command with a written comment. The conditions stated by Colonel Langdon 
need not interfere with sending the remainder of the Chiricahua and Warm Springs Indians to Fort Marion. By remainder, Sheridan meant the nearly 400 people, uh, peaceable Apaches, then living quietly at Fort Apache. By the end of August, three of the, of the young Apache children had died. One was the four-year-old daughter of Geronimo who had been feeble when she arrived. Langdon and the post-surgeon had tried to improve her health with milk and other good food to no avail. Langdon allowed the Apaches to go into town in small groups under escort to make purchases in stores, often for food, which was in short supply of bureaucratic eating. The women did a good business in, bid, in beadwork and the men in bows and arrows. Very good. I, that makes me want to read that too, just because of the Fort Sill factor. Um, I have ties to Fort Sill as well that you'll hear in just a, a moment, but very good. Thank you for sharing that with us. Sure. So once Geronimo and his tribe surrenders, they're sent by train to Florida to Fort Pickens, then to Mount Vernon Barracks in Alabama, and then to Fort Sill in Lawton, Oklahoma, correct? That's, that's correct. Okay, so now, you know, we can't talk about the time after Geronimo's surrender without talking about the National Historic Landmark that is Fort Sill. So my dad worked for Riverside Indian School when I was younger, and then he went to work at Fort Sill later. So we spent a lot of time on the base. It's an artillery base. And back then there was honestly a lot more freedom for us kids to roam around, but it's a lot tighter on security now. And we'd visit Geronimo's grave and the jail cell where he was housed for a short period of time. In fact, there are some bars on the windows of one of the cell doors and, and the bars have been bent. So we used to always say, well, the Geronimo bent the bars because he was so strong and tough. <laughs> I don't know if we were the only dumb kids saying that stuff or if it was just us, but anyway, but it was a myth, of course, but was fun to think of it that way. So side note, although that jail is called the Geronimo Guardhouse, built in 1873, Geronimo was only in the jail for a short period of time, but occasionally was thrown in jail for drunkenness. He lived in his own home and had animals and grew crops and so on. On the base, we'd also visit the graves of other famous natives, such as Quanah Parker and countless Comanche, Kiowa, and Apache, who were prisoners of war there at Fort Sill. And there was the Fort Sill Indian School established in 1871. Even being as young as a teenager, I really didn't take it for granted the important and terribly sad story that's found there at Fort Sill, but nonetheless, it's, it's a story worth knowing. So let's unwrap what the history of Fort Sill is all about and how it ties to the story of Geronimo. Fort Sill is located just north of Lawton, Oklahoma, west of I-44. It started as a frontier cavalry post and played a role in the American Indian conflict. You'll find Fort Sill along with what used to be inhabited by the Wichita in the 1850s along Medicine Creek. Now, Medicine Creek has its own history. For instance, in season one, episode five, parts one and two, my Kiowa guest, Monroe Satoke, talks about his great-grandfather, Hunting Horse, who was also a prisoner of war, and he preferred to camp by Medicine Creek rather than stay in the barracks. A plaque in one of the bluffs states that young braves fasted in lonely vigils seeking visions of the supernatural, and warriors presented their shields to the rising sun for power. It was a place where people were brought to be healed, but it was also a place where a 310-foot cliff was a site for Native American suicides. I personally like to think of it more so as that place of healing, but of course we have to remember the good and the bad with our history. So side note, anyone who knows the Wichita mountains out there in the wildlife refuge knows Mount Scott. I remember climbing up Mount Scott and down Mount Scott, but for some reason we always seem to do that in the hottest parts of the summer, like, like Michael and I are in right now. So anyway, this mountain was named after General, General Winfield Scott, who had fought in the war with Mexico. And all those years of my climbing that mountain, I never knew that. So back to Fort Sill, it was named after Brigadier General Joshua Sill by his West Point classmate, General Sheridan. And another fact, the first Indian agent was the grandson of Daniel Boone. So some interesting little tidbits for you listeners out there. So Michael, let's talk about how Fort Sill was part of Geronimo's story, as well as many other American Indian stories. 
uh, with a white man encroaching on their territories, which meant no place to graze livestock, the thinning out of their buffalo herds, and so on. Several tribes went full on raiding in an attempt to object to the goings on of the time. So over time, soldiers fought against the tribes and began bringing them one by one into Fort Sill as prisoners of war. Some were captured, some surrendered. And so again, you have Geronimo's own surrender. And what happened next once Geronimo and his tribe lived at Fort Sill, that's what I've been wanting to know. You know, what, what happened next there? The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Choctaw. Be sure to join our community on 